0: We're going to be looking today at the last words of uh, Christ on the cross, and it's kind of a collection of things, seven, seven last words, so we'll be looking at different Bible verses, and what I'll do is just read each as we go uh, along, so we're not going to be doing a scripture reading in advance like we typically will, but if you want to grab your Bibles, you'll find a copy in front of you that you can grab, and the first uh, reading is from Luke 23, it's on page 1045. Um, so you can look there, and then turn back and forth to the other ones: Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mostly from Luke, John, and Matthew. I'll have this up above too. But if you want to follow along, that's the way to do that. Let me uh, let me just give another uh, opportunity for us to focus and and right our souls as we approach God's Word. Let's pray again. Uh, Father, we want to give you this time. We pray that the distractions of our minds would be set aside, that we'd be engaged with your word, which we believe is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword, that it can pierce and penetrate and divide joint and spirit, uh, bone and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart, not for our bad, but for our good. And so we, we ask humbly that your spirit would illuminate your word that you would give us uh, insight and that it would be accurate and that you would take some of what is said here today as we take a look at, at these words of life and that they would not just be meaningful but transformative and, uh, and life-changing because um, that's what Christ came to do. So we humbly ask that you would apply that to our hearts now and we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, so let's take a look at, uh, at these now. If you were with us last week, you know that we were talking about motive. Why do I do the things that I do? What is it that drives me to do the things that I do? And we saw that that's an important question for Jesus. As he came and he did his ministry and he engaged with people in particular, he was pretty harsh with the kind of person the Pharisee of his day, who said, look, I'm doing all the right things, but Christ, since he knows the heart, realized their motive was wrong. It was wrongly directed. So they may have looked before men like they were fine, but God knew that they were just like whitewashed tombs. They were dead inside. They looked good on the outside, but they were actually dead. And he challenges them on that. And in fact, He calls them a brood of vipers and hypocrites. And he says, you've got a duplicitous life. You say one thing and you do something different. He says, those are the type of people that are going to be most harshly judged. But it begs the question, what about Jesus? I mean, why is he able to look at other people and say, hey, your life is not living according to the standard that you say it is? What about him? And what we'll see on the cross is that Christ truly practiced what he preached. And that's an important thing. His final words demonstrate that he not only was who he said he was, but he did himself. He lived out what he said others should be doing as well. And Christ is very much at a crossroads. In fact, I had you turn to to Luke, but in the Gospel of Matthew, just before we see the encounter that Christ has on the cross, we get a glimpse of what it's like just before that. And some of you know this story that he had gone to the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows what is about to come next and it's overwhelming. And in fact, what he says in Matthew twenty-six thirty-eight is this, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. I don't know if you've ever been at that kind of point before. Profound loss in life or grief or or you don't know what's going to happen next and you just feel like you're so overwhelmed you could die. And in one of the other gospels it says he's sweating like drops of blood. I mean this is intense stuff that's happening here and his soul is so heavy And he says to his disciples, stay here and keep watch with me. And he goes on a little farther and he falls with his face to the ground and he prays. And some of you know this. He says, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. So Jesus is at a crossroads here. His whole life, he knows he's been headed to this moment and he's overwhelmed with death. And he looks up to his father and he says, if it's at all possible, will you take this away from me? And what if God says, no, I'm not? What is Jesus going to do? How is he going to respond? It's at a crossroads, and we all have these moments in life where we come to a decision where we know what we choose will shape the future course of our lives and everybody else affected around it. Maybe some of you can look back and think about those moments in your life when you were at a crossroads and you had to make a choice. And you've got some wisdom now as you look back and you think, wow, that was a good choice. Or you might be saying, that was the worst choice of my life. And you can look back. Well, that's in the past, right? You're going to have these moments ahead too, crossroads moments where you come to a point in decision and you've got to say, what am I going to do? And Jesus in that moment, overwhelmed with sorrow, says, can you take this from me? And some of you know what happens next. As he confesses that and he says, I'm overwhelmed. Please take this from me. He says, Yet not as I will, but as you will. He has the freedom to say, God, take this from me, but I am at the point where I'm willing to do what it is you've called me to do. And he moves forward. With this, And he's betrayed, he's handed over, he's beaten, he's flogged, he's ridiculed, he's mocked. And if you, you know, see the passion of Christ that Mel Gibson rolled out a handful of years ago, which is pretty brutal, you get a sense of what things are like and what's coming up next. And you can't quantify the mental, emotional anguish attached to this as well, but we get a physical picture of it and it's pretty overwhelming and sobering. And here on the cross, then, Jesus, as he is hung and goes through the process, utters some words, and we call it the seven last words, but they're really phrases that he uses, the seven last words of Christ on the cross. And we're going to look at each, which seems kind of overwhelming, but don't worry. They're going to go pretty quick each time, so it should be a bit of a page turner in that respect as well what is jesus doing how does he practice what he preaches on the cross the very first word that we read in luke chapter 23 34 the first word is this father forgive them for they do not know what they are doing i don't know how many of you have seen the movie gladiator uh it's it's one of my favorite movies um now all of a sudden it's old it's a classic right and they've got two sons, and one of the rites of passage at a certain age would say, let's watch Gladiator together. It's just something that that we do. And if you're not familiar with it, it's a story of uh, a man who's a Spaniard, but he's part of this Roman movement as they're conquering nations, and he's the commander of all the armies. And uh, he's given his whole life to doing this. He was taken from a life of farming, from his a wife and his son and he's on the front lines and the tension in the movie is that they're looking for a new uh, emperor and, and the man who's passing on his mantle was going to give it to this guy Maximus right Russell Crowe he's going to, because he's earned it he deserves it this guy also has a son who's just a snake he's a terrible person he's evil conniving creepy and the son ends up murdering the father so that he can have the position instead of the the guy who should have gotten it. So that's kind of the storyline. Now, what ends up happening is the son, as he gets this power and authority, betrays Maximus and is going to have him killed and has his wife and his son executed as well. And then Maximus rises up from the ashes. He escapes and becomes a gladiator. And slowly, as the time goes on, he gets renowned for his feats of honor and strength. And he ends up in the Roman Colosseum. And at one point at the end of the movie, he ends up face to face with the man who's betrayed him this guy who's just the scum of the earth. And it's this wonderful moment because when he says, You know, who are you? He's been wearing a mask, this guy who's in charge of things now. And he turns to walk away. He says, How dare you turn your back to me? And he goes, It's such a great scene. (laughs) He takes off his helmet, you know, he turns around. And he meets him face-to-face, the guy that's betrayed him. And it's this wonderful thing. He says, my name, here's the quote so I don't mess it up. My name is Maximus Simius Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant to the true emperor, Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son, husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life or the next. And you're like, Yeah! It's such a great moment. Justice is being served. You betrayed me, and I'm going to get my vengeance. And, of course, the guy on the receiving end knows that this guy can do it. And if you don't know the rest of the story, you've got to get the movie and watch it. And in a sense, it kind of feels like this moment when Jesus is on the cross, and all these people are mocking and ridiculing him, and they're spitting on him, and they're saying, Who are you? You know, and that's the moment when I want the Maximus to show up. I want Jesus on the cross to say, you ungrateful, inadequate, lowly, scum of the earth, I am Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, eternal Word, the Sovereign over all, and I will smite you. With fire from my eyes. That's kind of, I mean, you're like, come on, do that! These people deserve it! And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them. What? No! (laughs) Don't forgive them. Make them pay! They deserve vengeance! And of course, they are me. And you. I mean, this is unbelievable, the word of forgiveness, the word of mercy. You know, that, 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 the emperor always goes like this, thumbs down, executed. And you want Jesus to do that, but he doesn't. He speaks a word of forgiveness. What? How is that possible? Where's the display of authority and power? And he's, of course, displaying it. This is the greatest strength apparently for Jesus is to be able to say when you have every right in the world to smite thou, forgive them. That's what true authority and power looks like. Jesus has been teaching his disciples this. Even the the night before he was betrayed, he said, you want to know greatness in my kingdom, strength in my kingdom, what it looks like to be the greatest? And he bends down and he washes their skanky feet. And he says, this is what it's like. And he turns the sense of authority and power on its head and he lives out what he said. He said, you know what? You need to forgive those who've hurt you. Love your enemy. And here he does it on the cross. And if he had, but done what I want him to do, it would have taken away the very purpose of why he was hanging on there, which is on the cross, which is to give forgiveness. This is the only way it could be accomplished. He'd been challenged on this before. Peter, one of his disciples, when he finally says, you're the Christ, I believe you are who you say you are. You're the son of God. And then Jesus says, okay, you got it? Now I'm gonna start teaching you what that means. I'm gonna die on a cross. And Peter says, "Uh, no, you're not gonna die on a cross. That's a terrible idea. I've just said that you're the son of God, but you're not thinking straight. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't take me away from this objective. You understand some, but not all. It was interesting, Satan himself challenged Jesus in this very way, saying, hey, you can have all the glory and none of the suffering or pain. And Jesus realized that's not God's plan. Not my will, but yours be done. And so on the cross, instead of a word of retribution and payment and judgment day and the Terminator and living color, he offers A word of forgiveness. One of the greatest forms of strength apparently that can exist. And it seems that he is able to see that the enemy is not the people. But sin and death. Father forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're controlled by a power beyond their knowledge by sin and death. And that's my true enemy that I'm coming to eradicate. So he offers a word of forgiveness. But that's the first word. The second word then is a word of assurance. And this comes in Luke chapter 23. Um, so just a little bit later. And actually to get the full sense. Let's skip back up to verse 38. There was a written notice above him. Which read this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you were under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then Jesus said, or then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. And this is a word of assurance to criminals hanging on the cross on either side of Jesus. And this word, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise underscores that it's not a life of good deeds that gains you access into the kingdom of God. Right? I mean, this guy's on the cross, he's about to die, his final breath, and Jesus said, you're in! Why? What had he done? He was just dying on a cross, right next to Jesus. How do you get into the kingdom of God? Is it by accumulating a lot of good things over a long life so that your good deeds outweigh your bad? Apparently not at least for this individual. And of course, some might also look at that and say, oh, let's just wait till the end. Let's have, a, let's do whatever we want, live our own good lives and at the very end say, oh, Jesus, save me. Oh, you're going to be there. Right? Which, of course, misses the entire point of why Jesus came in all the parables and teachings where he says, if you, I, here's why I'm here to be in a relationship with you, to have a life that's, that's much deeper in meaning and value than you could have apart.'" from me but somebody could take that and say that misses the point robs you of life in a kingdom besides the starting point clearly here is a heart that has reached that point in life where you can admit that you have nothing else to stand on I mean this person realizes he doesn't deserve anything and that's the beginning point for people who want to walk in God's kingdom And it's kind of ironic, this man on the cross who wants Jesus to remember him when he comes into his kingdom is actually demonstrating what life in the kingdom is like by saying, I don't deserve to get in. That's what it looks like. He says, God, remember, Jesus, remember me when you're in your kingdom and Jesus is kind of saying, you got it, you're there and you're going to be there as well. This is apparently a a changed man, his heart's laid bare before Jesus, and he calls out to him in faith. And the contrast is the other criminal that's basically saying, hey, save us. You know, if you're so great, if you really are who you say you are, then do something. Uh, John Piper makes this comment. The penitent thief, the one who's confessing, fears God, admits wrong, accepts justice, acknowledges the goodness and power of Jesus, and now he pleads for help. Both thieves wanted to be saved from death, but oh, how differently they sought their salvation. There's an infinite qualitative difference between save me and save me. One person said, save me. It's all about me. And the other person saying, save me. I know I can't get beyond this point without somebody coming in and changing me. And that's the true work of this king, king of the Jews that they're ridiculing him about. This rebel's converted. The benefits of the kingdom are given him in Jesus' words. Today he'll be with me in paradise. Immediate forgiveness, total acceptance, the assurance that he'll be with God. The promise of a paradise spent with Christ himself. So there's this word of assurance. Now, next we see a word of provision. And this is from John chapter 19. Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby he said to his mother dear woman here's your son and to the disciple here's your mother from that time on this disciple took her into his home the first word was to the father father forgive them the second's to a criminal you're going to be with me in paradise and now he's speaking to his mother and early on in his ministry Jesus framed his relationship with his mom in a way that seems kind of strange I don't know if you remember uh, early on in Jesus' life when he's doing some teaching and somebody says, hey, your mom's here, you know, and he says, who's my mom, you know? But whoever does the will of God is my, can you imagine a mom hearing that? Like, wait a second, they didn't raise you? Ah, I'm your mom, hey, son, hey, son. Mom, I've got some stuff I'm doing here. These are, there's my mother right there. She's probably feeling a little bit left out for sure. He responds by saying, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus says elsewhere that he came to bring a sword, not peace, such that a man will turn against his father and a daughter against a mother. And that reality is experienced. I mean, in real space and time, in different places, you've heard stories of some of the people that we have that we support who are ministering in places where to say I'm a follower of Christ literally means this kind of thing. But they're rejected entirely by their family at their own risk as well. You might conclude then that Jesus devalues nuclear family connections. And that notion is utterly destroyed here on the cross. When Jesus says these words, he looks at his mother and in affection meets her gaze and tenderly offers provision. Because he knows she's going to be hurting. She's going to be losing something. And on the cross, we might see Jesus dying for our benefit. But Mary sees a son dying. She's his mom. This man on the cross suffering, that's her child. That's, That's her little boy. She nursed him. She fed him. She helped him with his homework. The Pythagorean theorem. She saw him turn into a man. She had hopes and expectations for his life. I don't think it was this: die on a cross at age 33. And now here he is. Jesus does not dismiss this human relationship. Instead, while he does this work of cosmic significance, he has in the mind, in mind the needs of his mom. He knows. He understands. She needs a moment of care, of recognition a value of significance in a provision. And it's impossible to replace your own child if lost, but he does what he can to give her the desires of her heart, one who will love her as a mother, you know, a son who will provide. And the disciple whom Jesus loves takes her into his home, and he invites them to use the language of mother and son. Dear woman, here is your son. So one of the things that strikes me about Jesus often He's doing this cosmic work of significance, but he still cares for the needs of those who are in his life. Again, in John 13, the night before he was betrayed, he took bread and juices, we'll celebrate later, and wine. And he gave something to his disciples because he knew that they were going to, they were going to have, they were going to, suffer, they were going to suffer too. There was going to be an emotional loss. In John 14, he says, you can't go where I'm going. So he gives them something to remind them he's there still. He provides for others, even when he himself is suffering. And that, to me, frames in many respects the power behind this next word, this word of abandonment. In Matthew 27 46, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Lamach, Samachnani, which means, My God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? I think I've said before, to me, this is the most theologically confusing statement in the entire Bible. I mean, when I try to do the mental gymnastics behind what this means, I, I just can't, I can't figure it out because we know that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit have existed in eternal fellowship. Sweet Loving fellowship. The perfect family as it were. I mean all deferring to each other. Forever. For eternity. There's never been a moment when they haven't been existing in intimate fellowship. And the son does what pleases the father. And the spirit shows everybody how great the son's obedience is. And the father delights in the son. And here on the cross... When Jesus takes on sin, he becomes the object, not of the Father's affection, but of the Father's wrath. And at that moment, when he takes it on, since he is sin and God cannot look on it, he is now rejected and treated as one who is an outcast, a scapegoat, the one who is sin incarnate. And in that state, the Father cannot be in fellowship with the Son, and Jesus knows that i think this is probably if i had to guess what jesus in some senses was anticipating when he said my soul is overwhelmed for the point of sorrow he knew that the only person who would be with him when everybody else rejected him god the father would now do the same thing nobody's there on his side his disciples have rejected him and fled the ones whom he loved And now the father, who he knows, even though everybody else is against him, will be there in his corner, says, I am turning my back to you. I have forsaken you. And that moment of darkness is impossible for anybody to understand. Why have you forsaken me? He knew the answer. It had to be done. This is what he came for. But this is a genuine experiential cry of abandonment. And perhaps this morning you can consider that gives us a measure of freedom for all the whys that we might ask. Have you asked any whys of God? God, why? If, if you're really there, why? Why? Why did this happen? Why is this person gone? Why is this relationship a mess? Why have I created this scenario? Why have you And that's what Jesus says. Why have you? It's very personal. You. Why have you abandoned me? And the cross assures us that there is no eternal why. That an answer has been given. That Jesus himself in his body taking on sin has given the answer. That God so loved the world he gave his one and only son, right? because this is what love looks like he has sacrificed himself and experienced the abandonment of the father who never showed up have you ever read waiting for Godot or heard of that a French play where two guys are talking and they're waiting for this Godot to show up and he never does written by a skeptic who's basically clearly saying that Godot is God we sit around and say hey when's he going to show up he never does end of story and on the cross, then, God shows, I mean, in the person of Christ, that is he here? Does, does he care? Is he ever going to be? You look at the cross, and you say, yeah, this is why it's so significant. Yes. He asked that question, why have you abandoned me? So that those who hope in him never have to. Ultimately, it's been, it's been answered. He's, he's, he's made the provision. He is the provision. He is the lamb. He's the, the one who's taken on the sin of the world. And you have the freedom to ask why because we don't understand those categories. We can't see. But when you do it, you've got to look at the cross and say, well, there's my answer. He knows. More profoundly than anybody else could what it's like to be abandoned. So I ultimately never have to. I mean, Hebrews twelve, two through 3, some of you may know this, but it's, it's worth reflecting on. Listen to what this says. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus is physically present there, but he couldn't get to the right hand in fellowship with God without going through the cross. And what is it that kept him there? The joy of what was going to be accomplished. Not just fellowship with God, but fellowship with those for whom he would die. You. There's beauty in my brokenness. And Jesus knows that, for he was broken. So you can consider him who endured such opposition from simple men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So Jesus can say as he departs, hey, look, man, I'm leaving you with a mission and I will be with you to the end of the age. When you go through the valley of the shadow of death, don't fear that because I am with you. He knew abandonment and the absence of the Father's presence so you will never have to. And that's the word of abandonment. And then he offers a word of what you might call fulfillment. Later, knowing that all was completed and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked the sponge in it. Put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. In John nineteen twenty-eight to 29. And the reference here is back in Psalm sixty-nine twenty-one, which is the psalm of David. It's kind of interesting. You're just reading through the psalm. It just seems like a random verse. And yet, here on the cross, Jesus is saying that had to be fulfilled. So it's a word of fulfillment. Well, what exactly is being fulfilled in that? And what does he say? Jesus said, I am thirsty. Who gets thirsty? You think God the Father is up there knocking down some Red Bull because he's tired? Throwing some, you know, Mountain Dew voltage or whatever it is called. Bang. <laughs> that kind of stuff. You know, it's, it's funny because there's one of these scenes, you know, in the Old Testament where uh, one of the prophets is kind of having a a showdown between the God of Israel and all these other gods, and they're not showing up. So he says, maybe they're, you know, relieving themselves, or on a vacation, or something like that, too. But his God doesn't need that, right? The God of the Bible doesn't need that. He's 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 a spirit. So who's who gets thirsty? Does, do you think God the Father, who's a spirit, gets thirsty? We get thirsty, right? I mean, y- you might. You might be hungry right now. I don't know when your stomach wakes up and thinking about what's next for you, whether it's um, you know, kale as your choice of consumption or Chipotle. It's like, that's what I'm thinking about now, all the more so because I mentioned it. But the reason that you have that is because you're human. You get hungry, you get thirsty, you get tired. And Jesus here on the cross is doing a divine work, but he's also doing something that only a human could do. He had to become human. I mean, that's what, how the gospel opens up. John, it, it, you know, in the beginning, it was the Word. Word became God. Word was with God back in eternity, and the Word became flesh. He put on skin and bones and feelings and emotions, and he was thirsty on the cross. I mean, that's a very earthy thing to be. It's a word of humanity. The Messiah is not just that is the promised one, fully God, fully God, but fully man as well. Six hours he's on the cross now at this point. He's tired. He's weary. He's exhausted. You ever been like that? And all you just want to do is put your head down and sleep. Or you're so hungry. you're so thirsty, just a sip of water. Mmm. So he says... In his humanity. A thirst. There were heresies. And false teaching at the time. Gnostic teaching. That would say Jesus was not really human. He appeared to be human. But he actually wasn't. And Jesus addresses that here. He says I'm thirsty. And even after the cross. When he was raised from the dead. One of the first things he does. Is he says hey guys let's have some fish. <laughs> With each other. Why? Well because He's showing that he's actually still, he, he's still flesh. It's not just some spiritual thing. We live in a world that's got some material nature to it, as well as the spiritual. And you can't set aside either. Jesus is dealing with both realities on the cross. There's something spiritual and cosmic happening. Forgiveness of sins, how do you measure that? Plus, I'm thirsty. It's a both end. It's not dualistic where we just say it's only spiritual or, you know, spirit's good, flesh is bad. This is one of the beautiful doctrines that come from the whole Bible. But even here too, I'm thirsty and it had to be fulfilled. This is not a God who couldn't suffer, but one who enters into suffering. You know, way back in Genesis 3.15, the very beginning of the Bible, when this whole mess started and sin entered the world and all the distance and craziness that happens, there's a promise that somebody would come one day, the seed of the woman. And that was a a promise that you can trace in Jesus' lineage. Eventually, David, the king, one day somebody from the line of David would rise up as the Messiah and this is who Jesus is. This is why the... It's so important to read about he was the son of this person, son of that person. He was actually the son of David. He was physically of the line and descendants of a human being who walked on the earth who happened to write Psalm 69, which is quoted here on the cross. Because the Messiah, the Son of God, had to be fully human, not just fully divine. He's both. I mean, this is something I've mentioned before, I think is very precious. That we have a God who's not just transcendent, but one who's imminent. Not just out there and distant and to be obeyed because, but one who draws near to us and understands what it's like to walk in this world. This word of fulfillment then. I'm thirsty. Next, a word of completion. This is number six. We're almost at number seven. The final words of Jesus here. Now, this profound statement after he'd received that drink in John nineteen thirty, Jesus said it is finished and with that he bowed his head and gave up his spirit and you might also call this a word of perseverance he kept going to the end he didn't give up until he had nothing left to give it's finished Paul would express, one of his followers, a similar sentiment about what life is about. I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. Till the very end of his life, he's gonna keep going. And we might grow weary, but we press on. I mean, there's a spirit of perseverance that Jesus demonstrates here. Even when we feel like we have nothing left to give, I've been living a little bit in the horse and his boy with C.S. Lewis. Uh, again, and some of you n- may not know that story, but there's two characters, Shasta and Erevis, who are fleeing and there's an army that's coming behind them and they're in the desert and they're tired and they're thirsty and they've just given up. They can't go on anymore. And there's no possible way that they're going to make it to safety because this army is closing in on them and they've got nothing left. And then a lion shows up, if you remember this, and starts nipping at their heels and all of a sudden when you feel like, wow, I guess I'm going to die. There's fear that comes along with that and they are driven to safety because this lion is attacking them. He actually scratches one of the characters as well. Man, all of a sudden they got energy that they didn't realize that they had because they feared for their lives. You know that lion character is a, a picture of God and Aslan, if you know the world of Narnia, nipping at their heels when they're bone tired, they had more in them than they thought. But the fear of their lives motivated them. What kept Jesus faithful to the end? You know, earlier in John, we mentioned that he taught his disciples what it meant to be great in the kingdom. It meant serving, laying your life down for another. Jesus says, No greater love has anyone than this. He gives up his life for his friends. And when Jesus says it is finished, this is what he means. He's given up his life for others. He, he went all the way to the end. And it wasn't pr- protection of his own life that got him across the finish line, but the securing of others' lives. I mean, that's why the Savior is amazing. I and mean, what motivates us maybe is like, oh, I'm, I'm going to die. I guess I got a little more in me. What motivates him is they're going to die. I've got to finish. I have to become the source of their salvation by finishing to the end, by completing what I started. And of course, that's a word of assurance as well. I mean, we know in the book of Philippians, for example, we read that he's going to complete what he started in you. I mean, here's a guy who completes what he starts all the way to the end. And he says, if you've been given faith, if you've trusted me, I'm going to complete it. Now that's the kind of person you want in your corner. Not somebody who gives up at the first sight of problems. But one who goes all the way to the end. Now finally a word of trust and it's related to what we just said. Jesus called out in a loud voice, Father into your hands I commit my spirit. In Luke 23, 46. It's a profound statement of of trust, of surrender, and it's an intimate statement of trust as well. Jesus addresses his father again. He started by talking to the father, you know, forgive them, and he ends by saying, okay, it's all done, and now I'm committing myself to you. At the beginning of his public ministry, God the father commissions and affirms Jesus. He says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased And the significance of that father-son relationship is carried all throughout the New Testament. Jesus was very close to his father, connected intimately. And back in eternity with Trinitarian fellowship, as we said, but now God the son, the human, must entrust his spirit to the father at the point of greatest desperation, which is death. And he commits himself to the father's hands. Now systematic theologians tell us that what does faith look like? you got to have content, what do I believe in? You gotta actually have conviction that, well, yeah, I think that stuff is true. And then the final element of faith, the one that's really the kicker is trust. You can know a lot of information about something and kind of believe it's true, but are you willing to put all of, your, all of your life there? Are you willing to align everything with those realities? That's what trust really looks like. And there's people and services all across the world who will be agreeing wholeheartedly today with the material that's shared, you know, from the Bible, believing it's true and accurate and holding with strong conviction to wonderful doctrines like expiation and propitiation, sacrificial atonement, union with Christ, assurance of salvation, imputed righteousness, and you may not know what any of those things are, but they're fancy theological terms talking about what's true for what Christ has done. But many of those people are in great danger of leaving with absolutely zero more trust in those realities. They're just categories that we've created that don't make a difference at all in their lives. We'll believe that God has the power to create the world and to give us his inspired, infallible, inerrant, perfect word, revealing his will. We believe he has the power to wrap himself in flesh as God the Son, to die on a cross to satisfy the demands of a holy and just God, and even to raise Jesus from the dead and conquer our greatest enemy. And yet, we stumble at the point of saying, okay, I believe you got this, God. Just trust. I mean, recognizing if this is the kind of God we got, can I trust him with everything? I mean... And that has profound implications, of course, in all areas of life, holding loosely to the things of this world so that we can pronounce with absolute abandon and wholehearted commitment, Father, into your hands I commit my, my spirit. Now, not just at the point of death where it seems like the best possible option left, but every single day. And let's face it, you'll most likely not be called to die on the cross. But biblical faith does call us to die die to expectations about how life is going to be of who will or will not show you affection of reputation of significance without trust you and I frankly we're going to be tossed and torn about like a wave of the sea with the rise and the fall of life's circumstances but the invitation here is to respond first and foremost with I trust you And that gets us at the end of this message back to where we started in the Garden of Gethsemane before he hung on the cross when Jesus was able to say, I'm overwhelmed with the point of sorrow. Is there any way I can avoid this? I don't want to drink this cup. And he says, not my will but yours be done. That is a profound statement of trust. And I know for a fact as I stand here, that is a place we're going to be tested as well. But the good news of the gospel is you're not doing it alone. You're you're, you're not doing it from the demands of a God who hasn't entered into your reality, one who wrapped himself in flesh and said, I will practice what I preach. If I'm telling you to trust, I've already done it. And here's the demonstration of it. That's that's good news. And I'm not suggesting that we're all going to stand in this kind of way, but I am saying that Christ... Who intercedes for us now gives us his spirit and assures us that he's gone before us and and he's done, he's taken care of it. So that gets us the encouragement to come to him and be honest and to say, Am I willing to trust you? And hopefully he's hopefully the answer is yes. But he also knows that we're pretty weak and we're gonna stumble and fall. And that's why he's got this. He said, I got this, look at the cross. I did it. I was faithful to the end. Into your hands, I commit my spirit. And that gives us the all compelling motive to do the same. Now, Jesus knows we're going to struggle. He understands that you know, maybe maybe right now, I, I don't know, maybe you're like, yeah, that sounds good. I'm willing to trust. Come on, you got everything. And then in 10 minutes, you know, when you leave this place, all of a sudden, without even thinking about it, you're like, "Ah, eh, it doesn't work so well for me. You know? So he gives us something. In fact, this, on the night he was betrayed, and he gave us bread, and he, he gave thanks. He said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Paul tells us, this guy who said, You know, persevere to the end, that we're proclaiming his death until he comes again. We're reminded of what Christ did on the cross. And we have to remember that again and again and again because he knows we need it. We need to know that he's for us, he's not against us, and that we're not designed only to be tossed and turned by the circumstances of life, but to anchor ourselves in somebody who was faithful to the end. In fact, The cup that Jesus was saying if there's any way for me to avoid this cup would have been the cup of God's wrath as he was justly pouring out his displeasure on sin. And Jesus drank to the dregs all of that so that you and I wouldn't have to. And we're reminded of that because this cup is the cup of forgiveness of sins. And it was sealed and secured by the shed blood of Christ on the cross. So if you're the person today who says I've got that kind of faith that you were talking about. I understand what it means and I believe it. And even though I'm struggling, I do believe, help my unbelief, I trust, I want to grow in that trust, then this is for you. If you're not there yet, as we distribute this, then just let that pass by. But if you're interested, we'll get you ready. Let me know. What we do is uh, pass out the bread first and then we take, all of us, uh, Just hold it and we'll take it as one to signify our unity in Christ. And then after we're finished with that, the cup, which in our case happens to be uh, grape juice signifying the blood of Christ. So brothers and sisters, first, the body of our Lord.